Hey everyone, this is Marcia. The Artemis team is on the road this week, and we decided this would be a great opportunity to share one of our favorite NWF Outdoors podcasts. The one we're sharing today is from their Vanishing Season series. This podcast series talks about the consequences of climate change, which are more evident every day and are undoubtedly having an impact on hunting and fishing. As sportswomen, our intimate knowledge of the lands, waters, and wildlife we rely on is a critical voice in the climate conversation. We have a responsibility to share our stories. The Vanishing Seasons podcast series takes up this challenge. In this episode, Tia Shoemaker, who you will remember from an Artemis podcast in July, sat down with Vanishing Seasons host Erin Kindle to talk about the changes that she's seen in weather patterns and habitat quality in Alaska and the impact it is having on her hunting and fishing seasons. We hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. We look forward to being back with you next week. And until then, be bold, stay curious, and get outside. Picking up these fish, you know, they're warm, they're not moving fast, they have a growth on them already, and they're just, they're, they're small, they're skinny, and you can just see they're, they're, they're just too hot. <laughs> and so I just walked along the stream, you know, almost feeling like being in tears, you know, just watching these fish and, and feeling really sick about what I was seeing there. Climate change. Those two words are becoming more present every day, even to those of us who prefer the peace and quiet of a morning on the water or the excitement of a bugle piercing crisp fall air. But we begin to notice that things are a bit off. When wildfires still rage during rifle season, or western rivers have permanent afternoon fishing closures every summer, or when more frequent and more powerful hurricanes continue to ravage waterfowl paradise in the southeast, something just ain't right, and we know it. Our sporting traditions are threatened, threatened in a way we can't ignore, threatened in a way that could severely alter our way of life. So, shall we sit and watch our hunt slide away, our family fishing trips deteriorate into a lesser version of the glory days, and our cherished Octobers and Novembers drift into something we can only reminisce about? That's really not an option. Our option is to get active, use our knowledge, and tell our stories. Tell the world that our sporting lives are worth saving and that there's plenty left worth fighting for. We start now. We start by telling our stories. This is Vanishing Seasons, Climate Chronicles from the Field. Alaska, the last frontier. Maybe not technically the frontier any longer, but certainly the best, wildest chunk of American soil that also happens to be teeming with fish and wildlife. The average American hunter dreams of pursuing moose, caribou, bear, or the incredible doll sheep on the vast landscapes of Alaska. Alaska's waters also hold countless fish and some of the largest populations of anadromous fish, which support a robust commercial fishing economy. Alaska truly is the place of sporting dreams. But it's also ground zero for climate change. The far north has seen some of the most extreme changes on the entire planet. Alaska has warmed up more than twice as fast as anywhere in the United States, increasing by over 3 degrees Fahrenheit over the last 60 years. What do these changes mean for the fish and wildlife of Alaska? Tia Shoemaker probably knows as well as anyone. She grew up hunting, fishing, and outfitting for her family business, the Grizzly Skins of Alaska, 
deep in the heart of a true American wilderness, the Bekaroff National Wildlife Refuge. So, tell us who you are and where you grew up. Uh, my name is Tia Shoemaker. I grew up on the Alaskan Peninsula within the Bisharoff National Wildlife Refuge. It is um, the last inholding within the refuge, uh, human inholding. And it was an area that my parents bought from a homesteader who had got the land. It originally homesteaded 40 acres down there. And they flew down to the area. Um, originally, we had been starting off at a guide camp up on the Canadian border, Salmon Fork of the Yukon River. And the, the hunting was pretty challenging and the sparse. And so my parents flew down to the peninsula, saw how great it was, and were able to secure this area. And so when I was three, we started living down there, um, full winters, summers, springs, falls. We lived there year round and we would take hunters just during the fall. And that was about it during the time that I was real young growing up. We'd homeschool during the winters there and, and, uh, it was just our family, of course, in the winters. So we did that till I was about 10. And then my parents decided my brother and I were getting a little bit bushy, which is to say we were not as social as we could have been. So we would, we'd go up to the Circle Hot Springs, which is really near the Yukon River. And we went up to there to a one-room schoolhouse, nine kids. And we would only spend about three or four months going to that public school and living up there during the winter months and then be back down at our at our summer lodge or place on the peninsula for about nine months. But until I was 10, I grew up full-time out there. Give us some details about the landscape and what lives right outside your door. Well, if you walk out the front door, it's hundreds of thousands of acres of rolling empty tundra. And the only thing living on it is the animal populations. There's bears, moose, caribou, fox, lynx, wolverine, wolves, and then an array of birds, um, a lot of water, waterfowl. So, you know, growing up out there, it was really not feeling like we had bears in our backyard, but rather we were sort of encroaching on their backyard there, 40 acres of of wilderness within a wilderness area. Um, so we were constantly bumping into wildlife in the front and backyard. Alaska is seeing the deep impacts from climate change and feeling the need to adapt quickly for both people and wildlife. Impacts range from changing precipitation patterns, increasing wildfire, loss of sea ice, thawing permafrost, changing vegetation types and coastal erosion. The impacts are numerous and gaining momentum by the day and affect nearly every corner of Alaska. For a land and for people who have always been known to be tough and resilient, Alaska is at a crossroads. Will the difficult and more frequent conversations about climate result in the urgent actions that are needed to stave off the worst and preserve Alaska's way of life? Or will the impacts overwhelm and severely alter one of the last great wild lands on the planet? The answer is up to us, but we need to get moving. Tell us a little bit about what you do for a living and how you make your, how you have your livelihood up there. Sure. Uh, we started, my parents started guiding in the early eighties and they started guiding bear and moose and caribou hunts there on the peninsula. 
the it's a vast array of you know there just there's so many animals down there i think that you know fish and game estimates around two bears per square mile on the peninsula which when you break that down and look at that it's it's really a huge number of brown bears and also some of the world's largest of course because of their their feed and then same with moose you know there's really large moose there used to be huge herds of caribou we hunted as well and so we started off guiding for those three. And then uh, later on in life, we began fishing trips as well, because there's a lot of fun fishing around that area. So now what it looks like is we have um, a spring bear season on even years. It's the way that the state mandates it. And then we have a fishing season through July and August, moose season in September, and then a fall bear season on odd years. So your life is 100% dependent on the wildlife of Alaska. 100% dependent on the health of the ecosystem and the wildlife, absolutely. And not only that, but our ability to live out the remote lifestyle that we have and do is completely dependent on that livelihood. There's no way that you could live that remotely and be able to make a you know make make any money at it um, without without having dependency on the fish and wildlife. In addition to the many terrestrial impacts of climate change, Alaska's marine fish and wildlife habitats, species distributions, and food webs are all increasingly affected by warming temperatures, retreating and thinning Arctic summer sea ice, and ocean acidification. Continued warming will continue to accelerate and worsen these issues in ways that are difficult to predict making adaptation even more challenging. Alaska residents, communities, and their infrastructure also continue to be affected by climate change. These changes will directly impact how and where many Alaskans will live. Where will the care and management of fish and wildlife stack up against these extremely pressing impacts? Alaska has, you know, warmed by over three degrees uh, over the last 60 years, more than twice as fast is anywhere else in the U.S. Talk a little bit about the changes you're seeing where you live. So I think the biggest weather changes that we're seeing are summertime temperatures. We see a, a lot more heat, a um, lot more sunshine, a lot drier, and it's it's not. It feels like it's not quite as predictable. Um, we're seeing, you know, not as much snowpack, of course, up high. I remember as a kid, the mountains were always covered in snow and that's even all summer long, you just have snow. And now in the summers, they're completely bare. There is no snow up on the mountaintops. So that's been quite the change. Um, and of course that affects a huge, uh, uh, vast array of stuff, you know, from the, the water temperatures um, being, you know, fluctuating, being a lot warmer. So I think I think what we're seeing really in the trend is just warmer, drier weather and a lot of sunshine. I know that spring bear of 2014 was a real shocker for us. It was, my mom has kept a recording since 1987. Every single day on the calendar, she records the precipitation, wind and temperatures and that 
whole season, that spring bear of 2014, we were hunting in t-shirts. It was 70 degrees a lot of the days and we had 40 days of sunshine. And, you know, as kids, I remember really kind of wishing for some heat and some dry weather and, and just the rain jacket was part of your outdoor apparel. And nowadays, there are times that we're actually talking about conserving our water supply. We collect rainwater and that's where we get our drinking water. So there are days that we're going, okay, we have to actually really be cognizant suddenly of what we're, how we're using our water and how much is left until the next rainfall. Warming temperatures have already caused a substantial increase in the melting of glaciers and overall snowpack. Alaska Fish and Game notes that this will result in a significant loss of aquatic habitat, especially migration and spawning habitat in large rivers, largely due to less water availability. Species like salmon, grayling, and rainbow trout will have access to less habitat, particularly in the spring, which will likely result in reduced spawning success and declines in these species. Fall spawning fish like char and whitefish will also be negatively affected due to increased sediment loads in the winter that creates rough conditions for embryos and juvenile fish. Many Alaskan fish also rely on the ocean for at least some portion of their lives. Ocean warming and acidification are two impacts becoming more prevalent by the day. In 2016, 17, and 18, warm ocean temperatures were blamed for extremely low cod harvest and the driver for the governor of Alaska to declare a fisheries disaster. For a region that relies so heavily on fishing, fishing tourism, and subsistence fishing, these impacts could signal a significant change in fishing opportunities and for Alaskans' way of life. You guide anglers as well. What species do you fish for, and you know what type of fishing are you guys doing? We do uh, fly fishing and we do spin fishing as well. I'm more of a fly fishing enthusiast. I really enjoy that. And I love getting folks out for their first time fly fishing because it's it's a fantastic spot to be a first time learner with the fly fishing. My dad has a saying of even Ray Charles could catch a fish down here. And it's, it's true. Um, we have a huge population of fish. There's all five species of salmon. We have Arctic grayling, Dolly Varden, and rainbow trout as well. Um, and so each kind of each week of the fishing season, you're sort of fit, you're targeting different different species of fish, or it can allow you to anyway, or you can fish for all of them. But like I said, we're flying out every day, so we can choose what species we want to target that day. Whether we want to go to the coast and catch silvers, whether we want to go to a stream and fish for rainbows, dollies, and, and grayling. Um, so yeah, we just have a, a, a good diversity and a really great time being able to go out and, and chase so many different types of fish. So, you know, one of the big impacts of, of climate change has been ocean temperature rise, you know, and it has a particular impact on anadromous fish that spawn in, in the rivers and streams and places like Alaska. What kind of changes have you seen in the aquatic life? over the past handful of years. Yeah, that's a, a great um, thing to talk about because that's probably the biggest changes that I'm witnessing. You know, I'm out for two months. I, I joke that my only wardrobe in the summer is 
fleece pants and waders because for two months straight, every single day, I am on the fishing stream. And it really allows you to see a lot of things happening. In the, you know, I've been out there since I was 14 fish guiding, really. And so the, the changes I've witnessed have been pretty astounding. I guess, you know, the, the biggest things that we're seeing are disease, uh, different like growths on the fish. You're seeing um, they have these this mold on them. They've all, all these funky things going on. And we've just started seeing that recently. The warm water, you can wade. There are days you can wade without your waders on, which sounds great. But really in Alaska, that's that's pretty sad. You know, this last summer, there's a huge die-off. So the the area that we're in is we're getting a lot of, you know, those fish from the Bristol Bay. And there's over 58 million salmon coming in. And they were seeing, I mean, people started getting very concerned because they're seeing huge die-offs of the salmon. Um, A lot of it, they attributed to a heart attack because uh, the, you know, the warmer water holds less oxygen and the salmon need more oxygen in that warm, in those warm temps, you know, to, for their, for their blood, they got their blood's pumping um, faster to support their brain and body. And so they're seeing that these fish are dying from heart attacks. And was, I think that uh, at one point, Fishing Game said something about, or the state stipulated that, that water cannot exceed over 59 degrees Fahrenheit or something like that for the salmon, for healthy salmon runs. And this last year, the temp- water temperatures in Bristol Bay all over, they were recording temperatures of 76 degrees in these streams. So, of course, they we're seeing these mass die off. And um, then we're seeing a lot of fish that they're not going up the streams until way later in the season. They're hanging out in that cool Bashiroff Lake area rather than feeding up into the tributaries where they're going to spawn. And so you're seeing these fish that are already colored or even dying out in the lake before they reach their spawning grounds. One of my personal stories of it is that when I was a kid, there's a stream that's about a mile from our house and we would hike to it all the time to fish. And there's pretty good dollies and there's grayling in there and and the salmon come up it. And I used to hike down there all the time as a kid and fish. And I just loved it. There was always great fishing to be had. It's just my go-to. It's probably one of my favorite fishing streams, honestly. And this last summer, we had some folks come out and we hiked down there and, you know, I think I was wearing a t-shirt, hike down there. You're way too hot and your waiter is just super balmy. And we got to the stream and it was so low and so warm and there's fish in it. But I caught a couple and just, I put my rod down. I couldn't fish. I see picking up these fish, you know, they're warm. They're not moving fast. They have a growth on them already and they're just they're they're small they're skinny uh and you can just see they're 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 just too hot <laughs> and so i just walked along the stream you know almost feeling like being in tears you know just watching these fish and and feeling really sick about what i was seeing there so that's i mean that's just a personal narrative of of what we're seeing and that's Unfortunately, more and more every summer, it just really hit me this summer more than anything. Uh, I couldn't believe how low that water was. 
Drought and the wildfires that follow are another increasingly severe impact affecting Alaska due to climate change. Scientists predict that Alaska's terrestrial ecosystems will continue to get warmer and drier into the future, which will lead to more forest loss and more changes in habitat type, all while increasing wildfire risk and worsening the situation with each acre burnt. In Alaska, a big fire year is considered a year in which more than 2 million acres burn. Three of the top four of those years have occurred since the year 2000, while the trends and predictions point to even more fire in the future. How will the fish and wildlife that hunters and anglers rely on adapt to these changes? And what do these changes say about the future for species like moose, caribou, bear, and salmon? When you go look at that calendar that your mom keeps, and you know she's recorded the temperature and the weather and so on every day for 35, 40 years now or something, do you see the change there? Are you looking at that going, man, that winter, it was certainly not like this type of winter? Or, you know, is that kind of a family memento that helps you understand it? For sure. Yeah. And a lot of, we have a ton of repeat clientele and they're showing up and they're saying, oh, what? they're trying to run back their memories of where do we go on this day? Where do we go on that day? So we'll pull down the calendar. And, you know, one of the, one of my favorite visitors that we've had has been coming for 26 years. And so it's almost become this ritual that we every summer pull down a calendar and say, well, what happened back then? And, and two years ago, he brought out his grandson. So we of course wanted to pull down the the calendar from his first trip and say, what, what happened? What was it like? And it was, it was shocking to see the differences uh, from things like walking through the, the marsh in front of our house and you're falling in you're, we were wearing hip boots back then and, and falling in above our hip boots up to our waist in these swamp areas and all the standing water. And now walking across the tundra, you know, you can, I could walk across with his grandson and it's like walking on crunchy potato chips. It's walking across this land that's in dire need of rain. And here it's been 40 days and we haven't had any. Tia, will you tell me about any changes you've seen in the vegetation? Yes. The way things grow and seasons. Yes, there's been, I've noticed huge uh, weed growth, algae blooms in the rivers that we fish that were, it was never there. You know, there are sections that I think I remember about the time I was getting pretty darn avid, which was, you know, early 20s. Um, I was, I was really into fly fishing, still am, (laughs) but I was getting really into it, really starting to pay attention to stuff. So it was around this time that, you know, we're going along fishing with clients and I'm saying, oh, we're going to skip this part. It's got vegetation. It's never, I don't know why, but it's never good fishing. There's never rainbows in there. There's just fish that move through. They don't hold. There's nothing good in that section. Well, in five years time, suddenly we're, we're hiking longer stretches to get around that area much longer stretches. Suddenly, you know, this summer I'm realizing, okay, we're, you know, and I, and I know these, I know these creeks, like the back of my hand, I've grown up on them. I know every stretch, I know every hole, I know every spot. I say, put a Dalai Lama in that area, put a, you know, tie on an egg second leech for this, or let's do beads on, on this stretch. I know every spot on these rivers and these creeks. And I'm going, wait, I don't remember seeing this much algae bloom. I don't remember seeing this much weed growth in this area. 
And sure enough, there's still no fish in those spots. And we're now skipping huge stretches of these creeks because there aren't fish in them. And, you know, and, and then to add to that, those, when there's enough growth in the streams, those fish, they can't access their, their, the gravel that they need for spawning. So there's kind of a do fold there of they they don't like that area. And of course we don't like to fish it because there's not fish in it. So that's just the aquatic section. Um, as far as vegetation on land that we're seeing, sure, there's there are sections of the peninsula that have alders that have grown up or willows that we were landing our super cub on this stretch and suddenly it's so grown up you can't land there. Or, or there's stretches of land where there's a, a moth um, that it has devastated the alder population. And then same with the, the mossberry or the crowberry as it's known natively um, to us on the peninsula that when I was a small child, we would stain our clothes rolling around in these mossberries and just be eating them like constantly. And, and uh, now you look and the mossberry, it's still there. There's some, most of them, it seems like there's dry and there's not as many, but the actual plant it seems like it's brown everywhere you look. It's just dead. The high Arctic and Alaska's tundra are seeing some of the most dramatic changes on the planet with regard to climate change. From melting glaciers and thawing permafrost to the climate-caused transition from tundra to shrublands, these areas are changing at an amazing rate, literally year by year in some cases. Some models, for instance, predict a loss of 77 to 99% of all of Alaska's tundra over the next 100 years. And the thawing of permafrost is also draining wetlands across the Arctic, including the loss of as much as 30% of all inland wetlands. The same wetlands that are home to some of America's greatest waterfowl species that spend the rest of their year in the lower 48 states. Food availability for some species like caribou has been significantly reduced in many places and changed their behaviors. Accordingly, hunters, and particularly subsistence hunters, have had to change their practices and methods. Will Alaska address these impacts and build adaptation plans in time enough to ensure the vitality of caribou and waterfowl and the people who rely on these important species? I mentioned that we spent, we suspend some winter months up in northern interior Alaska, very close to the Arctic Circle. And I went back up there in, I think, 2016, one winter. It's been a winter up there um, trapping and skiing my trap line and, and just, you know, catching marten and lynx and uh, just, you know, really kind of reconnecting with that way of life up there. And I've got some super great friends that are full-time trappers up there. And they were talking about that winter, how sad it was because we were getting these warm spells that were coming in and with a lot of rain. And so we were getting a hard crust on top of the snow and, you know, this frozen and then more snow and then this hard crust. And what they were seeing on their trap line was everywhere they went, everywhere they snow machined, these there are miles and miles of trap line. They're seeing bloody paw prints all in the ice just because they're, 
these animals are breaking through, you know, and they've got these, these soft paths that have evolved for cold winter climates where there's a lot of snow and they're suddenly, you know, they, they're having this ice that they have to contend with and just bloody paw prints everywhere that you go. You know, to me, that was, that was eye-opening. That was shocking. What is the community your your I'll say neighbors, but you don't have many neighbors, but what how does the community of hunters and anglers and other guides in Alaska talk about climate change? Is it something that comes up a lot? Is it is it not talked about very much? Just what do you hear out there on the, you know, on the wind with your peers? I think fishermen tend to be a bit more vocal about what they're seeing and their concerns with the change in climate. There's certainly a younger generation of hunters that are, if they've been doing it for any amount of time, they're talking about it. They're saying, wow, this is really strange. What are, what's causing these changes? This is bizarre. What's this all about? Those are things that, yeah, there is a, there is a kind of, group that there's taught this talking about it. Um, but, but certainly there's a demographic that I don't know if they're refusing to talk about it or again, maybe it's playing into that, that optimistic that we hunters have, um, that they're not looking at it, but I feel like it's not talked about to the extent that it needs to be, if we're going to have, if we're going to make the changes that we need to make. Let me ask you one more. If you could wave a magic wand and see the changes that you want to see on the landscape in a future that's bright for, for what you care about, what would that look like? So our sustainable stuff is our true wealth, right? The, it's our ability to feed ourselves off the land. It's our ability to access clean water. Uh, you know, in my mind, wealth isn't about how much we have, but how much we enjoy it. So I think my magic wand would be changing the way that we, particularly as, as hunters and anglers, think of our wealth and and kind of leading to this universal thought process that says, okay, what is important here? What do we want to see happen? Do we want opportunities to continue to hunt and fish our lands? Do we want opportunities for our children to have that? Um, and if, if the answer is yes, then then to, to do whatever it takes to make that happen and, and to get on board with some of this stuff. Alaska is no doubt a crown jewel in reality and in the imagination of hunters and anglers across the world. It holds so many incredible fish and wildlife resources and so many grand landscapes that it's simply difficult to think of this extraordinary place as a dwindling resource. Unfortunately, we have to change our mindset. We have to realize that even these magnificent and powerful places are subject to our actions, and perhaps more importantly, our inactions. We can't afford inaction any longer. Alaska needs to get into high gear right away and begin the arduous task of reducing impacts restoring old and weak infrastructure to better handle impacts, and working to make its lands and waters more resilient to the changes that are already occurring by creating adaptation plans, building climate change considerations into fish and wildlife management plans, 
protecting pristine landscapes, and restoring degraded areas. Well, I think the most important thing that we as as hunters and anglers can do is first of all, ask ourselves a question and ask the question is, what message do we as hunters and anglers want to send that these lost opportunities mean nothing to us? Do we want to send the message that hunting and fishing is fine in the here and now, but we don't value it in the long term? Or do we want to send the message that we care about it more than most? This is Aaron Kindle, and this has been Vanishing Seasons, Climate Chronicles from the Field. Original music written and performed by Keenan Koppel. Audio production by Dave Waldron. Writing by Aaron Kindle and TJ Brown. And a big thank you to Tia Shoemaker for sharing her experiences. Ask yourself today what you can do to help mitigate the impacts of climate change. What you will do to ensure future seasons. How you can demand that our decision makers take action right now to address our changing climate. And then set out tomorrow to get moving. Our sporting lives depend on it. For more information, visit nwf.org backslash game changer. This has been a production of NWF Outdoors. Thank you.